that, find an online bulletin with a digital connection card at the bottom. So we hope you'll do that. Just a few announcements regarding our week. Uh, tonight uh, at 6.30 is our September business meeting. And as a member of Cherokee Baptist Church, it's your right, your privilege, and your responsibility to attend these meetings. So please make every effort to attend. Um, also, our ladies' Bible study, our Wednesday night um, normal fall and spring activity uh, activities have kicked off. So we have youth group, children's activities, ladies' Bible study. And there is a ladies' Bible study that's on Wednesday nights, and it is uh, the, the Well-Watered Woman by Gretchen Saffles. If you're interested in participating, just talk to Carrie Owen. Uh, finally, I think last bit of information to pass on or remind you of is that Arctic Barnabas Blessing Boxes are going out uh, the middle of next month. If you're inclined to help out with donations, there's a list of donations in the foyer and a box for you to put those donations. And again, that will go out on uh, October 15th. I think that's all the announcements I need to make. Does anyone have any other announcements I need to make at this time? All right, would you please stand uh, as we have our call to worship this morning? Uh, just one slide, just two verses from Hebrews 12, uh, verses 28 and 29. So if you would, let's all read this together. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's worship.
It is that time of year when we uh, give to Texas Missions and informed you, the congregation, last week that we, um, as a church, decided to uh, focus our Texas giving efforts to the SBTC state missions offering as opposed to the Mary Hill Davis offering, which has been our custom for quite some time. And, and the reason we did that is because we, as a church, align s- alone with Southern Baptist Texas Convention and the Mary Hill Davis offering. It goes to the other state denominational uh, entity. And so since our values don't uh, completely align, since uh, we don't have the common ground that we used to have, um, we, and because our church singly supports the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, and we are now giving to the Reach Texas offering. Our giving goal uh, for uh, this year's offering is $4,000, and the theme is going above and beyond. And as usual, we are showing uh, videos to let you know how your money gets spent. This one, this week, to me, is uh, very special because this summer our youth went to M3 Camp uh, down in Sandia at Camp Zephyr. And it was a wonderful time. God moved in such a mighty way in our youth. And so you'll get um, this, this M3 Camp is in Glorietta, um, but it's still Southern Baptist Texas Convention, and you'll see where your money goes um, also want to remind you that this is the time of, of prayer, the week of prayer for Texas Missions. And on the back table, you will find a, a prayer guide. And if you'll just flip part of the way into it, you'll find day one, which that's today. Don't be surprised when it goes all the way to day eight because we pray from Sunday to Sunday. So please grab one of these. And when you have your morning quiet time or when you pray over your meal or whatever, just include this in your prayer time. But again, we're going to watch a short video, and then we'll have scripture reading and continue in our worship time. My name is Jennifer Woolley. My husband and I live in Houston, Texas, and we serve in the youth group at Northeast Houston Baptist Church. We had been serving for in youth ministry for about two years, and we had the opportunity to go and serve at M3 Camp. And we were excited, but a little unsure of what to expect. It had definitely been a long time since either of us had been to camp ourselves, and so we were a little nervous about how that was going to go. The camp experience is crazy. It is nonstop all day. These kids have a lot of energy normally, but then you put them in this environment with thousands of other teenagers that are feeding off each other, and it's crazy, but it's fun, it's competitive, it's loud. The biggest surprise to us was how much we connected with the students. We felt like we really had a good relationship with them. Off their their home turf, the kids see that you're making a sacrifice, that you're serving, that you're working hard, that you're out of your comfort zone. It helps them to really understand that they can trust you and they want to open up to you in, in new ways that they don't on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. The worship for us was extremely powerful. The last night in particular, we left there and... Um, our, our youth pastor told the kids, like, you may never again experience a night that, that is that impactful for you as far as corporate worship.
a lot of times you can kind of get the camp high, which was really cool for us to come back and to continue to see these kids, it not just be something that um, they lost. Hey, what you experienced at camp, what you learned at camp, that same Holy Spirit, that same everything you felt there is still available to you. And it, it is the same in Houston, Texas, as it was in Glorietta, New Mexico, and being able to encourage them in that. Once they had felt that and they knew what that was like, they wanted more of that and wanted to know him in that way and continued to seek him when they got home. When you give to Reach Texas and it makes these M3 camps possible for kids, it is a blessing to so many students that may have not heard the gospel otherwise. Our kids that have heard the gospel to truly have the Holy Spirit change their hearts in this environment that doesn't happen on a Sunday morning, doesn't happen on a Wednesday night in church. And it's providing this opportunity for their lives to be changed and for them to experience and know the Lord in new ways. If you'll open in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. James is going to come read for us. Second Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. <coughs> to other, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. I started learning this song last week.
struggle the same as you guys do. We wrestle with temptation. We wrestle with doubt and fear. And we hold to the same anchor that you guys hold to. And that's Jesus Christ. And you can have an Oprah Winfrey Christian lifestyle, you know, where you just find the things that work for you and, and make you better. And the problem is those things will fail you every time. The only thing that holds in this life is Jesus Christ. So when you sing this song, I want you to remember that where sin is great, grace is greater. And it's because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross.
Because of the crimson tide that came from him, we are seen as perfect and blameless in your eyes. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Illuminate our hearts. Change us to be more like Christ in this time. In your name I pray. God's people said. If you would please turn in your copy of God's word to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. Um, over eight years ago, on, uh, I guess it was in April, I don't know, maybe it was earlier than that, uh, I stood before you in this pulpit and preached this text in view of a call to come to this church. Uh, and uh, this text is going to be a jumping off point for us today as we journey into a new sermon series on grace. That's why it's entitled, His Glorious Grace. If you turn to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul in his long sentence from from verse 3 through verse 14, he he, he talks about um, all that God has done in Christ, and he says, to the praise of His glorious grace. And so this morning we'll begin uh, a sermon series that will take us through Thanksgiving, uh, and then we'll start something new uh, after Advent and start of the new year. Can you believe that? (laughs) The year just goes by so quickly. Well, I hope that you have, uh, well, I forgot to put the page number on there. Doggone it. What does it say in the bulletin? What page are we on here? If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a hardback black one. And if you'll turn to the back and find page 168, you'll be at Titus chapter 2. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 to 14, and this is God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all, all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, the fact that we can even say the word grace, what a testimony it is to who you are in your very nature, a God who is grace. Didn't have to learn about grace from some outside source. No, God, you are grace. And your grace appeared, took on human flesh, walked around on this earth, 
obeyed perfectly, suffered, bled, and died, rose again on the third day and is now ascended, and he sits at your right hand. Grace, nothing but grace would do that for a a people that were so rebellious, so undeserving. So, Father, as we begin to dip our toe, that's what it's going to feel like we're going to do, into the the massive um, body of grace, the infinite body of grace, amount of grace that you possess, we pray that we would just be in awe of you. We pray it in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I had thought um, that when I got done with 1 Timothy, that I would move right on into Titus and would just do another sermon series to the book, uh, but the Lord moved me in a different direction. And um, there is a connection, though. Do, does anyone remember how the book of Timothy ended? Grace be with you. And that was a point in the sermon uh, where I talked about God's grace and really didn't have the time to develop that in, in any detail. Well, now I'm going to take some time. And when Paul says to Timothy, and remember he says it to it's grace be to y'all, if we, if we put it in good Cherokee English. Um, so why do we need grace? Um, and so that's partially uh, why, I just, why I felt like the Lord was leading me uh, to, to turn to grace. Now, I have a desire for this series for all of us. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? All right. You're getting better at raising hands. I'm, I'm proud of you. Uh, my family and I went to the Grand Canyon in 2009. And uh, when, if you've not been there, this won't be a spoiler. I can't spoil it. I can't say enough to spoil it. It's just an incredible place. And one of the things that I remember while we were there was that um, you just kept walking and walking. And wherever you looked, there was just canyon. You start from right here and you just look and look and look and look and there was canyon. And, 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 and trying to get a sense of the size, that just it was a massive uh, feature of God's created order. And so I kept walking around going, just wow, just wow. At some point, the kids, they kind of lost interest, but I didn't. I wanted to keep walking around and just keep saying wow and praising the Lord. But I remember this one spot where uh, they had, and I don't know if it was a telescope, uh, whatever it was, but it had this piece of metal in it. And as you would pan from one side to the other, that piece of metal, the the telescope would just kind of fall down into it so that when you looked through the telescope, you could see a particular feature of the Grand Canyon. So as you moved it from right to left, it just kind of did like this. And you'd be able to look and see something particularly uh, unique about uh, the Grand Canyon. And and so this morning, we're going to get sort of the Grand Canyon panorama view of grace. There's no way that I can do justice to God's grace. There's no way I can spoil it for anyone because there's more of it than we can possibly take in. But in the course of this series, we're going to do like that little telescope. We're going to move and we're going to look at particular things about God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. And the whole desire for this series is just as I walked around the Grand Canyon and went, wow, we would just keep going, wow. That he would, that he is that way. 
that he would be that way toward me, toward us, and we would just be awed by God. Well, we should probably start with the definition of grace. And, and I highlighted something shorter, that if you wanted to write this down, uh, think of a definition. Uh, this, this is a good definition from Jerry Bridges. And he says that grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against Him. It stands in direct opposition to any supposed worthiness on our part. One thing I want to point out to you is that grace is given without any regard at all to merit. Nothing that I've done right, nothing that I've done wrong. It is wholly and completely apart from any notion of merit. And so as we begin this sermon, again, I said it's going to be, especially today, a panorama. And we're going to describe from this text grace in 12 different ways, and it's organized in three particular headings. And we start with the genesis of grace. Uh, In verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared. All right, so if it has appeared, then, then that makes it sound as if it, has, it existed prior to that. So we might ask the question, where did grace begin? When we think of the word Genesis, we automatically think of the beginning of the Bible, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what, would it, what is the genesis of grace? Well, I just want to point out here again in verse 11, it says that the grace of God has appeared. In other words, it has been made visible. Don't understand as it has come into being. Now, when Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, he's speaking of Christ Jesus in his first coming, his life, his death, his resurrection. But that still raises the question where did grace begin? I think the better question that we should ask is, what is the origin of grace? And the answer to that question is, grace is of God, for He is grace. And I'll repeat it again. God is grace. Now that may sound odd to you, to say that God is grace. The Bible describes God as love. But grace does not exist apart from or outside of God. God didn't have to look around outside of himself for grace. If that was true, he would not be God. He would be dependent on something else outside of himself. He didn't have to learn about grace. Because if he did, then guess what? He wouldn't be all-knowing. He didn't have to figure out how to apply grace. Because if he did, then listen, he would be capable of change. And therefore, he would not be God because by definition... God must be immutable, unchanging. So God just isn't gracious. He is grace. He isn't just loving. He is love. He isn't just wise. He is wisdom. So therefore, when we answer the question, where did grace begin? What is its origin? We can conclude with this. Grace is pre-existent. Grace is pre-existent. Now think of it this way. Grace is not a New Testament concept that began with Christ's death on the cross. Otherwise, if that's when it began, God would be capable of change and He would not be God. 
step back a bit further in, in, in Bible chronology. Grace is not an Old Testament concept that began with Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Otherwise, again, God would be capable of change and He would not be God. Grace existed before sin because the eternal God existed before the world was created. And when God created Adam and Eve, He blessed them out of His grace with all they needed in the world, not because they had done anything, but because God knew they had needs. And out of His grace, not because they had done anything or not done anything, out of His grace, He met their needs. Now, we must, on this side of the fall, acknowledge that grace met human need differently before the fall than it does after the fall. So because God is grace, grace is preexistent. For God existed before the world created. And so we can say the same is true of Christ Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then skip down to verses 16 to 18 in John 1. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So we have pre-existent grace. But this text also, and this is an inference, which I think comes from the text, that pre-existent grace became promised grace. The grace of God in verse 11 that Paul refers to, it appeared because God promised that it would appear. Remember Genesis 3.15, right after the fall? God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That Right there, God promised that there would be one that would come that would vanquish the serpent in sin and death and hell. And that one was Christ Jesus, the one who was promised. And we see, we kind of get glimpses of Christ in the Old Testament. We, we see him in the judges. You know, there needed to be one who would stand before the people and would judge them rightly, but almost every judge wound up falling. And Jesus was the perfect judge. The prophets of the Old Testament spoke on behalf of God. Christ, he is the word incarnated. In terms of the Old Testament priests, the priests always had to give sacrifice for their own sins, but not Jesus. He was the one who would come and be the final priest, the great high priest who would make sacrifice for all sin. We see Christ in the sacrifices where the blood of the animal atoned for sin. The blood was the life. We see Christ in the tabernacle, in the temple, the place where God set His footstool on earth and met with his people. So we see glimpses of promised grace that would appear. In fact, 1 Peter 1 verse 10, this is a great verse. It helps us to understand what the prophets knew. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. See, the prophets knew that grace was coming. God had promised it. It was coming. Pre-incarnate grace... Our preexistent grace became promised grace. And finally, 
which we really see most uh, obviously in verse 11, it's, it's incarnate grace. See, Jesus Christ, the fullness of the grace of God, existed in eternity past, and He appeared in human flesh, in the incarnation, in time, in the created world. Now we understand as, as Orthodox Christians, when I say Orthodox, I mean folks that believe rightly what the Bible teaches, that the Trinity, although it's not, you can't find 1 Trinity 5.1 anywhere in the Bible, but, but we can infer it from what the Scriptures say. So the reason I bring that up is because of the connection in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. All that makes God to be God, Christ possesses that fully. All that makes humanity to be humanity, Christ possesses that fully. And so we can say that Christ, the grace of God, has appeared. Christ brought grace, made active on a human level. Jesus was the fullest human embodiment of divine grace. The supreme expression of it in His life and ministry, in His atoning death, in His victorious resurrection, and His ascension to the Father. Christ is incarnate grace. Well, the genesis of grace then leads to the gifts of grace. Verses 11 to 13, um, it says that, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you think about the gifts of grace, think back to what I said about God's grace as it existed in Him before there was ever sin. It was when God gave to Adam and Eve all that they needed, it was out of His grace. So we can, we can uh, apply that to ourselves. The gifts of grace, the gifts that God gives us through Christ, they match our need. I want you to think about this. God would be the greatest fool if Christ had died to give us something we did not need. Wouldn't He? But when you understand that grace perfectly matches and addresses our greatest human need, which is salvation, then you see God in all of His glory. So one of the greatest needs we have is justifying grace. Notice Paul says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. This justifying grace is is made visible. Justification, we understand it's a sort of a technical theological term, but it's easily understood. It's simply a declaration of righteousness. It means not guilty. And I want you to remember, don't forget this. These two things are so important. Justification, think of it in, in two ways. First of all, think of it as just as if I'd never sinned. And then also think about it as just as if I'd always obeyed. Now, we, we kind of pit that against the fact that as sinners, humans are unrighteous. They have sinned. They have failed to obey God. They are guilty. But when Christ died for us and when we accept Him by faith, then attributed to us, accounted to us, is Christ's perfect sinlessness. In other words, when God looks at us who are in Christ, 
He looks at us and it's just as if I'd never sinned. And then he looks at us and it's just as if I'd always obeyed. Because in our justification, Christ's perfect obedience is given to us. So that there is no cause for condemnation for us. And we understand that apart from justification in Christ, we would be separated from God for all eternity. And here's where we ought to remember grace. God did not owe any of us justification. He gave it to us in Christ without any regard to any supposed merit or demerit we thought we possessed. It's grace. We have justifying grace, but notice also in verse 11, generous grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we understand that all people means that all people need salvation. But Paul certainly doesn't mean all people without discrimination. I'm sorry, he means all people without discrimination. Remember, Christ first came for the Jewish people, but then salvation was, was made available also to the Gentile. So when Paul says all people, he doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. He's saying that all people without any sort of discrimination can be saved in Christ. Christ died for the elect and not one single person outside the elect. I want you to follow me here. There's a logical argument I want to make that I think you'll understand. First of all, Christ died for the sins of the elect. Now listen to this. Unbelief is a sin. So follow me here. It would be logically incoherent for us to assert that Christ died for the sins of all people. And then also to assert that an unbeliever dies also for his sin of unbelief. As if to say, Christ died for all sin and then the unbeliever has to die for sin as well. If that were true, it would show that there is a sin, unbelief, that Christ can't die for. And if that is true, he's a deficient Savior and he can save no one. But notice verse 14 says that Christ died to redeem redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now I know that there are some, and I understand where you're coming from, to say it's not fair that Christ didn't bring salvation to all people. Remember, God was under no obligation to give grace to anyone. But He has generously provided for all who come to Him in faith. Listen to this. Anyone, anyone who has a desire for salvation from Christ may have it. God always responds to repentance. He will turn away no genuine believer who responds in by grace or to his grace in faith in Christ Jesus. God is generous. We also see in verse 12 sanctifying grace. Verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That word training, um, it talks about fatherly discipline. 
the way a, a, a father would parent and discipline his children. And there's four ways that grace trains us. And the first way is that grace trains us in the reality of sanctification. And notice, Paul says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. Not possibly to live, not maybe to live. It's a reality. It's not a hope. It's not a wish. Grace trains us that we can really, truly be sanctified. We can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace also trains us in the order of sanctification. I think the New King James Version of the Bible... It presents the grammar or the kind of the word order better than the ESV does. So I'm going to read Titus 2.12 in the New King James. Because this shows the order of sanctification. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now do you notice there? Teaching us that, pause... This is the first thing in the order of sanctification. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Then the second part in the order of sanctification is living soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Listen to me. You can't do both. They are mutually exclusive. Okay, when I say, okay let me say it a different way. I don't want to confuse. You cannot simply say, I just want to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age and fail to deny God ungodliness and worldly lust. It just will not work. That is not how sanctification works. The order is, by the power given to us, the grace given to us, we deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and we live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We take off the old man and we put on the new. Grace also teaches us, or trains us, in the how of sanctification. Again, this is probably overkill, but we renounce the old life, of ungodliness and worldly passions, and we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's, there's no question about what is expected of us. And the grace also trains us in the why of sanctification. Verse 13 tells us why we're, we're living with sanctifying grace, because we're, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the second coming of Christ. Now, God could have left us without the grace necessary for sanctification, but He knew we needed it. So He generously gave it that we might have hope in this world and a testimony to His grace at work in our lives. Finally, uh, another gift of grace is glorifying grace. We see in verse 13 again um, that it's, it's talking about the future, that we're waiting. For, the, for, for Christ to appear. And when He comes, when He finally appears, God's people will be glorified. Having been saved from the power of the penalty of sin, also having been saved from the power of sin, God's people will finally and fully be saved from the presence of sin. And out of His grace, God will give to His people resurrected bodies, glorified bodies that are fit for eternity with God. 
We will be unable to sin. Disobedience won't even be an option. All that we will be able to do is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the gifts of grace given by God because He knew what we needed. But these gifts come from and flow from the ground of grace. In other words, grace is grounded in what Christ did. Christ in Himself had to satisfy the demands of justice and righteousness. Sin must be punished or God is not just. God placed the sins of His people on His Son who died in their place. So Christ perfectly satisfied the demands of justice. But also Christ must be perfectly righteous or the believer would have no righteousness to possess in order to be in the presence of God. But but Christ perfectly obeyed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So grace, the ground of grace is sacrificial grace. Christ sacrificed Himself for us. It says, um, verse 14, Who gave Himself? That's talking about our great God and Savior Jesus Christ giving Himself as the perfect sacrifice. The Son gave Himself. But it wasn't just the Son who gave Himself, but the Father also gave the Son. We're we're familiar with John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Hebrews 9.22. Why why did there have to be a sacrifice? Because without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, there is no forgiveness of sin. Sacrificial grace. And again, God was under no obligation to give His Son that we might have forgiveness. And the Son was under no obligation to come and give Himself for us that we might have it. But it's sacrificial grace. That sacrificial grace led to redeeming grace. Redemption, we understand, is simply the purchase of freedom. Notice in the text, verse 14, that Christ gave Himself sacrificially to redeem us from all lawlessness. And the reason is, we were all enslaved to all lawlessness. We had no way to free ourselves. There was no self-help program that we could be a part of that would cure us of our slavery to lawlessness. And in our slavery, we were destined to receive the full punishment for our sins. But Christ's redeeming blood was shed. He paid the price of redemption with His blood. He paid the penalty for sin and He broke the power of sin in our lives. And again, God the Father and God the Son were under no obligation to redeem us from the penalty of sin. But He did. And He redeemed us. He didn't just make us redeemable. He redeemed us. He paid all the price, not part of it. The Greek presents redemption as a completed task, not something in progress. He redeemed. Okay, what happened here? Redeeming grace led to purifying grace. Notice why. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself. Purify, you think of the Old Testament. Simply means to make clean. 
from a ritual standpoint. So the purifying grace of Christ means that formerly unclean people are now made clean with Christ's sacrificial blood. We have gone from impurity to purity. We are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And now, because we've been purified, we are able to come near to God. And this purity, it's not a wish. It's not a hope. It's a reality. And God had no obligation to make us pure. But it was what we needed so that we could be in His presence. Verse 14 also talks about relational grace. Notice, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. A people for His own possession. A peculiar people. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 puts it this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once we were not in covenant, in relationship with God, but out of His grace, out of relational grace, we have been brought into covenant with the living God, and God was under no obligation to do what was necessary to form a relationship with sinful rebels. Finally, Paul ends this section talking about empowering grace. He says in verse 14, A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where we were unable before to do anything, Good for the Lord. Now, through His empowering grace, we are able to do so. One study Bible says it this way. He, talking about Christ, He who fully satisfied the wrath of God for all our sins with His precious blood is the same Christ who by His Holy Spirit, listen to this, makes us sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live Unto him. I want you to notice the, the where where does works come in? At the very end. Why is that? Because do always comes before done. Because of what God has done for us in Christ, we are now able to do. We're able to live lives of thanksgiving, lives of holiness and sacrifice and service. And most of all, lives that because we have received grace, our lives now overflow with grace. God's grace is good. Now without the genesis of grace, without God being in Himself grace, there is no ground of grace. There is no God sending Christ to the earth to be the ground of our grace. And, and apart from Christ being the ground of grace, there, there are no gifts of grace. And without the gifts of grace, there is no hope. There's only condemnation. So grace is good news. But you know, you won't get that good news from other religions. No other religion will talk about grace. 
They will talk about what it is you need to do in order to achieve whatever it is that religion puts forth as their version of heaven or perfection or whatever it is. Grace is only found in Christianity. And as Paul has opened for us what grace is, I put before you today, if you are a person who has never heard about the grace of God in Christ Jesus, you cannot earn it. There's no way that you could put yourself in a position where God is obligated to give you anything. No, what God has prepared is a salvation that is only available through grace. You must hold out your hand and receive it by faith or you can't receive it at all. So if there has been a stirring in your heart that this grace really is real and that it is for you in your sinful state, listen to this, that in and of itself is God's grace breaking in to your life. Listen to it. Listen to it. Respond to it in faith in Christ Jesus. And God will bring salvation to you. We pray. Let's, let's have a time of prayer. Father, we do pray that if there are those here today that don't know Christ as their Savior and Lord, that your grace would be so powerfully evident in their lives that they would understand that this grace is real. Thank you for doing that grace in their life, Father. I pray that um, they would respond to your grace, that they would do what they alone can do, is to repent and put their faith in you. Lord, for the rest of us who see the panorama of grace, we pray, God, that you would just blow our doors off, that we would be so incredibly awed by the grace that you have shown us, uh, that we would just want to live lives of worship for you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing I Surrender All. I encourage you in this time of response. If there's anything that you need to, anything the Lord's pressing on your heart, please use this time for that as we all sing. us can sing that song is why because of grace that's the only reason any of us can sing that song Uh, just a few prayer updates I want to pass along to you uh, and then one final thing uh, to announce to you Uh, Mary Catherine's on her way to Kenya please pray for Mary Catherine um, while she's traveling Um, uh, continue to pray for Addie Webster Uh, I think she's 
resumes treatments this week. Is that, is that right? Is anyone else? Okay. I think that she is resuming some treatments this week. Do y'all want to share anything about Judge? So he's, his first treatment didn't work, and he's got to make some decisions about what's going to happen next. And he's dealing with leukemia, correct? Okay, thank you. So be in prayer for Judge and the family. Pray for Candace. Went to see her this past week. Uh, things are moving in the right direction with her, and we praise God for that. Uh, one day, I think we'll hand Candace a microphone if she's so inclined and just let her talk about how God has been so good to her through all of this and just lined up things that she needed. Uh, and I hope she does that. Maybe we all should just put some peer pressure on her. No. Pray for the Clinton Hayden family. Uh, Clinton passed away uh, Wednesday night. So pray for, pray for him, his family. Pray for John Holly. John had a shoulder replacement on Wednesday. I'd never heard of that before, but John had a shoulder replacement. Pray for Kirby Mark, that's Sam's granddaughter, uh, and also for Colton Bench. Kirby's going to have an ACL reconstruction done on Thursday, and Colton's going to have an operation also on Wednesday, on Thursday. So pray for the two of them. Um, Richard Reese, that's um, Vernon and Judy's uh, grandson-in-law, was bit by uh, a rattlesnake. Things continue to move in the right direction. You know, he had to have surgery, some extensive surgeries. Now they've got him on a wound vac, and they're hoping that uh, things continue to improve. Uh, pray for Robert Bench. Robert broke his arm. Was it last week Robert broke his arm? I tell you that Bench family, they're having a tough go right now. And then pray for Travis Shaw. He's been, it's uh, Glennis' brother. He's been in the nursing home and, and had, had a stroke, but it uh, sounds like things are improving for him. So just please continue to pray uh, for these folks. Any other prayer updates you want to pass along? Anyone? Yes, ma'am. The, uh, the meal should be 5.45. Thanks. Yeah, the meal's at 5.45. Thank you. 5.45 meal, uh, and then 6, 6.15 is when the youth and children stuff starts, and then 6.30 prayer meeting. So thank you. All right, one final thing before we go, and I'll be brief. Um, we started last week a deacon nomination or deacon selection process. Uh, there is on the back table, and if you would like one as a member of the church, uh, you are entitled right now to make a nomination or multiple nominations for the office of deacon. And, and please do that. Um, there's, there's no age um, minimum that I am aware of. So if, if, um, if, if you're young and you want to you say, I think so-and-so can be a deacon, you are, you're well, welcome to do that. But only church members may submit nominations for the office of deacon. And so the nominees must be members of our church. Don't nominate anyone outside of our church. Must be male, must not be currently on church staff. That's Jared, myself, and James. Um, not currently serving as a deacon. And, and when I mean that, I mean that we have five active deacons and one inactive deacon. So that group of men, that is uh, Charles and um, Roddy and Sam and James and Larry and Paul. So don't vote for those guys. Also make sure that they're biblically qualified to serve. Um, and so there is space on this form to write the names of your nominees, and then please sign your name or write your name at the bottom. If you don't write your name at the bottom, then your nomination form won't be accepted. That's so we can check and make sure that members are voting. And if you'll fill that out and then just put it in the gold box back there, then the deacons will take it uh, the next step of the way in the process. Uh, you have until the end of today to get these nomination forms in. So please 
Um, pray if you haven't already. I pray that you have. Um, fill this out. Put it in the box back there. And uh, then just continue after that to pray for the process as it carries itself out. All right. Well, let's stand. And uh, I'm going to lead us in a word of, of prayer. We'll have the, the Great Commission. And, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we do pray, Lord, that uh, as we are in this deacon selection process, that you would lead us. We trust that your hand is already on this church uh, to give us wisdom uh, as individuals and as a church uh, to select men that are willing, ready, uh, qualified to serve. We pray that already, Lord, you will been, have been stirring in their hearts a desire to serve and that they would come on board and, uh, and would do what they have been doing all along, which is serving. I pray for those that are mentioned, were mentioned this morning, those that are on our prayer list, and uh, pray, God, that you know each of their needs, that you would meet each of their needs by your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's say the Great Commission will be dismissed. And Jesus came and said to them, Yeah.